Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. Let's give our attention to God's word. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Grass withers, flowers fade away, the word of God stands forever. So let's pray before we consider it further tonight. Heavenly Father, these are your words. So we need you, Lord, to be here to teach them to us. Would you work in spite of, in spite of us? Would you teach in spite of me? Would you open our ears, Lord, to hear your goodness? We ask that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think it's been fairly well documented here at RUF that I like the History Channel and I watch it. And I saw a documentary about John McCain, former vice president, who, as you probably know, was a POW in Vietnam for a while, for five and a half years. And for almost the first two years of his imprisonment, he was in solitary confinement. And I heard him say one time that he almost wanted to say that he was more excited the day they let him out of solitary confinement and just to be with the other fellow American prisoners, still inside the prison war camp, than he was the day that he got out and came back home. He said he almost wanted to say he was more excited when he just got to be with other people than when he got to come home. Um, that's, a, that's pretty amazing if you think about it. Solitary confinement is an awful thing. It can, it can literally make you crazy if you're by yourself too long. And the reason is because you and I weren't built to be alone. It's not in our, our DNA, I guess you could say. We're created to be in relationship with other people. We're, we're created to have people around us. We're built for the context of community. And so this semester we're looking at the book of Acts and which we've said is the Acts is the story of the church. And we're looking at the book of Acts to answer the question, what is it about the church that's so special? How did it go from this really small group of people whose leader had just died to probably the most influential and maybe controversial movement in the history of the world? What is it about the church that caused it to be able to endure like that? And we said that we're ask, as we ask that question and answer it, that I think that what we're going to find is it's going to help us battle our boredom that we feel towards the church. I think a lot of times we get bored and complacent with our Christianity, our spirituality. And I think this study is going to help us do that. And so what we see, I think, from this passage about what is it that's so special about the church is this that the church, one of the key aspects of it is that it, it has community. It has community. 
it puts, it puts people in a context in which they can thrive, which is with other people. And so tonight I want to look at three things about biblical community. First, I want to see the necessity of biblical community. Second, the devotions, there are four of them, the devotions of biblical community. And third, finally, the results of that community. So let's look at that tonight quickly. First, the necessity of biblical community. Um, and this is a pretty brief point. So we need to remember where we left off, right? The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God has come on the believers. And the wind and the fire um, sweeps across the room. And then they begin speaking in tongues. And people from all across the known world begin to hear the gospel essentially being proclaimed in their language. And they, as they begin to wonder what in the world's going on, Peter stands up and delivers a sermon, which we looked at a couple weeks ago. And he ended with, repent and be baptized. And about 3,000 people were converted that day. And that's where we pick up. The very next verse is verse 42. And it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and things like that. And so the simple point that I want to make here first is that, that community, if you're, if you're a professing Christian, if you say that, you're, that you trust in Jesus Christ, then to be in community is absolutely essential for you. In fact, the Bible doesn't even really have a category for someone being a Christian and yet not putting themselves in the midst of some sort of Christian community. It's almost like it just, it just doesn't understand that. Um, you see what, what happens here in this passage. 3,000 people are converted, and just naturally the very next thing that happens is they get together and spend time together. And they relate to one another. It happens essentially immediately. And if you think about it, the rest of the New Testament is, at least most of it, arguably all of it, is written to who? It's written to churches, right? It's the, it, the Bible assumes that you'll be in the context of community, have other people around you. And so I say that for a very quick application, which is this. That if you are a professing Christian, then you, I think it's fair to say, then you must be involved in a local church. I think that would be the application of what this looks like for us today. That if you say you're a Christian, then you really, in a sense, have to be involved in the local church. If not, the Bible just doesn't have a category for you. So I try to get you to see that it's, it's very necessary. Secondly, see that biblical community is devoted to four things from this passage. The first is this, the apostles' teaching. See it. Verse 42. Um, see all of them in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. When they got together as a group, they wanted and they knew that they needed to hear God's word. That's what the apostles did. They took the scriptures of the Old Testament and they taught them to the people. They showed them, they showed them Jesus from the Old Testament. That's what the apostles gave them. They essentially gave them Jesus. The apostles understood that Jesus is the lens through which we see everything, including the Old Testament. And so when they came together, when they got together as a, as a body of people, 
They came together to learn more about Jesus, about his kingdom, how to live in light of God's grace, uh, about God's law, even learn about the truth of their own sinfulness. But they got together and they devoted themselves to the, to the apostles' teaching. So what does that mean for us? Well, very simply, you and I need the exact same thing. One of the things that we need from Christian community to be surrounded by other Christians, if you are a believer, is that you and I need the Word of God. I want you to think about what a beautiful thing it is that we have, we have the apostles' teaching. In fact, I think it would be fair to say we have it a lot better than they did in this day. right? Because we have, we have all of it. We have the full range of the apostles' teaching in the scriptures. Most all of you at home have multiple copies of God's word, the apostles' teaching. So how does that apply to us? Well, I would say that first and foremost, that we need to be in the context of Christian community. We need to be in a church where they, where they preach the gospel. Have you ever thought about what, what is it that I look for in a good church? Um, do they have good music? Uh, do my friends go there? Um, you know, do I like the service time? Do I like the, the preaching? You know, what is it a, that you look for in a church? And I think would make an argument that the number one thing would be, do they preach about Jesus? Are you, do you have a place where you can go every week and hear the good news? I think that has to be number one. And so a second quick application is, is this. I would say that RUF is a great way to supplement that. And I'm going to be very careful to say supplement that. It would not be wise for you to say, um, well, I go to RUF or, you know, BCM or Crusade, whatever other ministry, and that's sort of my church for the week. No, RUF, RUF is the church ministering on campus. And so this is a great way to supplement the apostle, getting the apostles' teaching in the midst of community. But you've got to be involved with the church. I would encourage you. Secondly, we see that they were involved in fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and then to fellowship. Um, the Greek word, I'm going to prove to you that I went to seminary. The Greek word for, uh, we have translated fellowship here, is koinos, which essentially means common. Uh, they, they had things in common. They commoned with one another. And why did they do that? Why did, why did fellowship result? Well, it resulted because... They had something in common, right? And what is it? Well, it's obviously the fact that their lives have been radically transformed. Their lives, they've seen their own sinfulness and they've realized that, that this person, Jesus Christ, has saved them. Would you mind shutting that door? Would you mind dragging that guy in here? They've come across the power of the gospel that God has saved them and they share that in common with one another. Um, you think about, you know what it's like when you, you meet somebody and you have, you realize that you have something in common and you get fired up about it, right? And I know in uh, December we were at our staff training sitting around with a handful of other campus ministers and we were talking about TV shows. Here we go, History Channel again. And Everybody's saying kind of their favorite show of the semester. And I, I mentioned Swamp People. hope some of you have seen it. Hands down my favorite show of last semester. 
I'd even been in a previous conversation, no one had heard of it. And so in this, this conversation, one other guy says, oh my gosh, you watch that too? And it was just like, sing, you know, connection. <laughs> and so what do we do for the next 20 minutes, right? We sort of ignore everybody else and we start talking about swamp people. Uh, you know what it's like to find somebody that you have something in common with, and the more precious whatever it is you have in common, the more you want to talk about it and the more you connect uh, around it. That's what, these, that's what these first century Christians are doing. They've found something that they have in common, the most fundamental thing to their existence, that they've been, that they've been forgiven by God himself because of Jesus Christ, that they share the same Savior, and they're fired up about it, and they spend time together, and they talk together, and they, they, they commune with one another. And the more you enjoy it, the more you enjoy whatever it is, the more fired up you get. Like, you can imagine if I grouped you, I said, all right, we're going to group off, I want to group you by eye color, right? All the brown-eyed people over here, all the green-eyed people over here. And I said, okay, now I want you to talk about what you, sh- what you have in common. Talk about your green-eyedness or your brown-eyedness. Right? How long will that conversation last? About five seconds. Because it's just not that important. It's just not that interesting to you. Um, but the more important it is to you, obviously the more you want to talk about it. And I think that as we make applications about our boredom with the church, I think that's where this this hits us at the heart a little bit. I think one of the reasons that you and I, and again, I'm making some presumption here, tend to get bored with the church and with Christianity is that we forget what we have in common. We forget the beauty of the gospel and probably because we, for, we neglect to see how the gospel is an answer to a big problem. Um, so, let me make a couple of quick applications. What is it what does it look like? Well, I think that you and I probably tend to default to thinking about fellowship, as in uh, that's a time when you go downstairs into the fellowship hall, right? What else would you do in the fellowship hall? And you eat donuts, you drink coffee, and you talk about the game from yesterday, and you, you, know, you talk about whatever, and then you go home and say, well, that fellowship. And I want to suggest to you that that's actually not the biblical understanding of fellowship. Um, that can be involved in it for sure. But what these people shared... The gospel is not only what they had in common, but it's also the level on which they shared with one another. Christian fellowship looks like confessing your sins to one another. It looks like reminding each other of the, of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus. It looks like encouraging one another um, about, about how God meets us where we are. That's what fellowship is. And again... I think the best, the, the Bible encourages us to find that in the local church. I think we have to find that in the local church. And again, hopefully RUF can be a great supplement to that. Secondly, or thirdly, rather, of uh, things that they devoted themselves to, the breaking, it says breaking bread. They devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread. And now, because it actually says the breaking of bread or breaking of the bread, whichever, um, it seems there's some debate whether they're talking about just they ate together or whether it's talking about the Lord's Supper. And it seems like to me that they're talking specifically about the Lord's Supper. Either way, it's not you know, a terribly big deal. But they gathered together 
And they did what Jesus told them, which is they ate together and they remembered him. They ate and drank in remembrance of him. So you remember right before Jesus was about to die and they're having Passover and he breaks bread and he gives them wine and he says, this, this bread is my body which is broken for you. And this cup that I give to you is my blood, blood of the new covenant, right? Why did he do that? Have you ever thought about that? Why did he do that and tell us to do it, to repeat that? Why do we do communion? Well, I think it's a very simple reason. It's this, because... It's a beautiful thing that, that God knows that we're weak in our faith and that he gives us a very real and tangible sign to encourage us. That, that when we eat that bread, right, that symbolizes Jesus' body that's broken for us in our place. I'm supposed to be broken by God ultimately, but I'm not. Jesus was broken in my place. My blood's supposed to be spilled and it wasn't. His was. But I get to actually eat that. I get to drink that, and I get to know this is, this is real. It's tangible. I can taste it. And I know that this comes from Jesus himself. So basically, they got together, and they reminded themselves of God's grace. I had a, a really good friend of mine one time uh, told me that when she was growing up, her dad told her that he loved her all the time. All the time. So much so that, you know, especially every night when he was you know, putting her in bed, He's told her a bunch of times during the day, he'd say, honey, you know that I love you. And so much so that she asked him one time, when she was sort of old enough to kind of process this, and she asked him, Dad, why do you tell me that all the time? And here was his answer. This is beautiful. He says, because I only heard my dad tell me that once, and it's easy to forget. And I want you to always know that I love you. That's a beautiful thing to see a dad uh, take a bad situation, say, my daughter will never forget that I love her. And that's exactly what we do when we get together. I think that's how we apply this, uh, this concept to us today. That we get together and we worship together, and more specifically, we take the Lord's Supper, which is essentially God saying, I want you to never forget how much I love you. We need to remind ourselves. We preach ourselves the gospel every day. Now, this is obviously something you're not going to get at RUF, right? Uh, we don't take communion here because that's really, that's given to the local church. That's only in the, properly administered, I would argue, in the context of a local church. And then lastly, we're going to do quickly prayers. They devoted themselves to prayers. Again, the prayers probably refers to some sort of set prayers in the temple. But basically, they were a community. When they got together, they realized they were dependent on God. When they were together, they encouraged one another by praying and recognizing that we don't have resources in and of ourselves, but we need God. And we're called to be a church that prays, people that praise. So lastly, let's look at the results of biblical community. Those are the four things they were devoted to. So what, what are the results that we see here? Um, look at verse 43. I think the first one is this. The first thing that comes out of biblical community is that people love and fear God. Verse 43, what does it say? And awe came upon every soul. And then verse, down in verse 47, uh, verse 46 says, And day by day, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, verse 47, they were praising God and having favor with all the people. 
from being in community with one another, they encouraged one another, and God used that to change them, to grow them, and he used it to grow their love for him. So I, I would ask you, do you want to, if you're a Christian, do you want to grow as a Christian? Um, if you, do you want to grow in your love for God? If so, then you need to sink yourself into biblical community. Because that's where God says he'll be found, in the midst of his people. I had an old, old seminary professor of mine and, and mentor of mine, a man named Bebo Elkin, and he used to have this illustration, uh, I guess he still does, where he says if he, when he retires, if he has enough money, he wants to buy a dump truck because he loves trucks and tools, and he just wants to move dirt around in his backyard. He just thinks it'd be fun. It's kind of a silly illustration. I think it's just to make a point. And so he says, if I wanted to get dirt all over me, where would I go stand? Well, obviously I would go stand right behind the dump truck, wouldn't I? Because there's the dirt. <laughs> he would use that to say, if you want to get God all over you, so to speak, where should you go? Well, you should go to the place where he said he would be, which is in the midst of community, in the midst of the church. And I was talking to a student not long ago that I was wrestling with their faith, and they were saying, I, I want to believe, and I, I feel like I do a little bit, but I want to grow in that, and I don't know how. And I said, do you, do you ever go to church? Said, no. And that was one of my first suggestions. Put yourself in the midst of good Christian community. It's where God said he'd be. Second result, they shared their possessions. Verse 44 and 45. Uh, it's again the same word, actually, of common. They had their possessions in common with one another. And that's what fellowship looks like. Uh, they gave their stuff up for people that needed it. It's not required of them. They still owned their stuff. It was voluntary. But they shared their lives so intimately with one another that they, they looked at themselves as a big family. And if you had a need and I could meet it, that's what they did. Uh, they sold land to make money and give it to people that needed it. What does that look like now? Well, that's a hard question to answer. What does it look like to share your possessions? Should we even do that today? What should it look like? Well, obviously we could go on for days with applications about that, but I just want to push you. Are, are you even thinking about it? Do you care about the people that you're in community with so much that you would actually sacrifice for them? Give up some stuff. Give up some money or time. And if you say, well, I don't really think that there's any need. I don't see any need around me. Then it might push us back to the concept of fellowship. Do you, do you know your friends and your, those in your community well enough? Because there's certainly some need there. Last um, result, verse 47 And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Right before it says, they were praising God and having favor with all the people. The last result of biblical community, I would say, is this. They reached out. It says, and the Lord added to their number day by day. And certainly it was God's work. But how do you think that that happened? Like, what did that, what did that look like? Well, it looked like this group of believers telling other people. They were so passionate about the gospel. They had found the answer to life's big problem. And it's just natural they wanted to tell other people. They shared the gospel with people. They told people about God's grace. They wanted other people to hear the good news. 
And so look, I'm going to end with this and tie it up. I have zero interest in guilt-tripping you into, into do, doing more evangelism. Okay? I don't say this at all to say things like, so how many people have you told this week about Jesus? Let's pray. Right? And, and sort of make you feel guilty and think, so that you leave here and think, man, I really do need to, I guess I should tell some people about Jesus. And so, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it a goal. I'm going to tell one person. Right? Um, I have zero interest in doing that. What I do want to do is not to point you to the, the telling of other people about it and make you feel guilty about it. I want to point you to the message that you have for people. I want to point you to, again, not the evangelism, so to speak, though we should do that, right? That's kind of my point. But the reason that we tend not to is because we don't really see that the good news is really good. The more that we see the beauty of the good news, the more we're going to be willing and, and desirous to go tell people. And in a sense, a part of that good news is that you'll never be alone. That's what the church has. That's one of the aspects that makes the church special. Special is that it, it basically looks at you and says, for a number of reasons, you're never going to be by yourself. You're not alone. And I think especially at UofL, UofL can be a very lonely place. Part of the good news of the gospel is that you're never alone. You're never left by yourself. I read a book recently. Can you say you read a book if you listen to it? Is that legit? Okay. I read a book. Wink, wink. I read a book called uh, The Lone Survivor, which is about... Have you read that? Yeah, okay. It's cool. Um, you should read it or listen to it. It's about a team of four Navy SEALs on a mission in Afghanistan that goes terribly wrong. So they send in these four Navy SEALs. And you have to understand that one of the things that continually comes up through this book is that one of the, the credos of Navy SEALism is that you never leave a man alone. You never leave a man alone. You never leave a man behind. Never alone. So these four guys go in. Mission gets all goofed up. And they're under a lot of fire by lots of people. And this guy, so the book's called Lone Survivor, so you see where I'm going with this. Um, this guy sees one of his buddies take a fatal shot. He knows there's no way he's going to make it from that. And he risks his life to get over there to him so that he can be by him when he dies, which he does. And the guy does die. He then does that. I don't know if he goes to be by their sides, but the other two guys end up dying too. So he's in Afghanistan, alone now. His three Navy SEAL buddies have died. Then the, the uh, mission that's coming to rescue him is utterly destroyed. It's the biggest tragedy in Navy SEAL history. The whole helicopter that was coming to get him, done. Which he knows about. I can't remember how, but he knows. And so he's hiding in this little cave. <laughs> okay, that's a bad moment, right? Okay, all my buddies are dead. The group that's coming to get me is dead, hiding in a cave, wa literally watching the people that are looking for him. That's alone. But he said, and he honestly said this in the book, he said, as alone as I was, and there may not have been anyone ever more alone in that sense, I wasn't ultimately alone because I know God was with me. And my question to you about that is this. How can he and how can you know that that's true? 
Because that, that would be great, right? To know that ultimately you're never alone, certainly in regard to Christian community, but let's be honest, churches are churches. And even churches can, let you, can make you feel alone. Even the best church maybe can alienate you some. But how can you know that ultimately you'll never be alone because God himself will be with you? And the answer is this, because Jesus was left alone for you and for me. In Matthew 26, basically the whole chapter is about you watch Jesus become more and more alone. He's heading to the cross, he's heading to his death, and he takes his uh, what, three best friends, and he says, come pray with me, the Garden of Gethsemane. And three times it happens, he says, watch and pray with me, and they fall asleep. And he's by himself, essentially. And then uh, after the third time, he sees the people coming to arrest him, he says, okay, it's, it's over now. And then listen to this, uh, verse 56 says this, then all the disciples left him and fled. Talk about being alone. All your buddies, people that have sworn they will die before they leave you. Watch them all run away. And then it gets worse. On the cross, Jesus cries out the loneliest words ever. Hands down, beyond any Afghanistan scenario, when he says, my God, my God. Now remember, this is Jesus, the Son of God, member of the Trinity, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me alone and rejected me? And Jesus took on utter loneliness for the sake of us. He took on utter outsideness. Hell, often in the Bible, is pictured as being outside, being shut out. There's a party, and you're shut out. Jesus took that onto himself and became ultimately and utterly alone, even from God the Father, because that's what we deserved. And he took it on himself so that you and I don't ever have to, so that you and I will never be alone, and that we get to have perfect fellowship with God, and not only perfect fellowship, but the Bible pictured it, pictures it as a marriage, that we get to be married with our Savior, perfect community. Do you know a God of grace like that, a God that puts us, that loves us so much that he won't leave us by ourselves, because he's offered to us? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you will never leave us alone, though Our problem is that we run from you, and we think we would rather be alone. God, we thank you that you lovingly hunt us down, and you put us in the midst of other people, and you put us in the midst of yourself. And you do so because, Lord, you're able to do that because you rejected Jesus. You did it for our sakes. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We pray that that message would change us. And we ask it, Jesus, in your name. Amen.